The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58. The word of God speaks to us. So I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is God's word to us. Good morning. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Jeff Nine. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, and it's great. I'd uh, love to love to get to meet you. If we haven't uh, met before, uh, and and also let me uh, add um, just uh, a sense of you. If you're here and you're not Christian, thanks for being here. It really means a lot to us that you're here. Um, there's no question off limits. If there's anything that comes up that you've been processing or something that comes up today, uh, don't be afraid to ask. So we'd love to talk with you uh, about these things. We believe deeply uh, in truths that you may not. Um, but we, but that doesn't mean that we want to push you away. So let's let's talk and let's engage. Um, and uh, hey, this week uh, and next week are our last two weeks in First Corinthians. If you're new with us, we've been walking for the last year through this incredible book uh, of First Corinthians, where Paul writing this letter to this church that he planted. Um, in, in just his care for them, his love for them, and it's been an amazing journey. And and today we really hit a bit of a crescendo. Really, a lot of what Paul has been arguing for, not just in chapter 15, but through the book as a whole, comes to just a, a, just a rousing crescendo here. And then next week, we're going to talk about chapter 16. Now, if you've read through 1 Corinthians before, you might have hit 16 and gone, I think this is where he's just like telling people like, hey, say thanks to this person. And hey, by the way, this thing is happening. And we sometimes have a tendency to, to read through that and kind of skip it. And let me just tell you, there is some incredible, incredible things in that chapter we're going to be talking about next week. And uh, so we're not going to skip through that. We're going to lean in. So I'm going to ask you to engage today and next week as we wrap up this study in 1 Corinthians. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask you to pray for me. We've got a lot of work to do today, and I'm re- but I'm really hopeful that what we're going to talk about today is, uh, is something that's going to, um, that, could, that could really, really change us in some dramatic ways. So let's pray. God, would you work in us to change us? Would you move through your word into our hearts and souls today and form us? Would you confront things in our hearts that should not be there? 
Would you confront things in our minds that should not be there? And would you wash us with your truth? Wash us with your word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This week, uh, I got to have a lot of fun with my oldest, and we went to D.C., we went to Washington, D.C. She had never been, and senior trip before she starts college, we decided to, to do a, a short getaway, and it was a blast. And I, and I haven't been to D.C. in years, but I love that city, uh, and I was fully expecting to see what I saw um, in terms of just being uh, confronted with some beautiful architecture. I, I, I don't know what it is about marble. I don't think it's probably actually helpful as a construction material, but it sure is pretty. And, and there's so much of it, and, and all these buildings are amazing. Um, and, and, and I was enjoyed that. And there was masses of people, had a lot of fun. But the thing that I, I expected to be bombarded visually, I, I wasn't, and I, and I should have, had I stopped and thought about it, I would have known I was going to be bombarded this way as well. But I, I was taken back by the way in which we were bombarded by ideas. Ideas. We walked through museums, the Holocaust Museum, Air and Space Museum, the Natural History Museum, Art Museum. We watched through the halls of Capitol, uh, of the Capitol. We walked through the halls and got to, to peek in on the Supreme Court. We got to do all these things. Uh, we walked by a, a gift shop with a, uh, a street barker. He really liked his microphone and, uh, and uh, speakers. I don't know if anybody else did. He, he was sharing ideas. I don't know what they were because we kept going. But uh, you're confronted by ideas everywhere. Now, I say that, and of course you know that that's true. You're confronted by them every single day. What you watch on TV, what you, uh, what you encounter at work, like we're bombarded not just by people but by ideas. Now, why do I say this? Why do I, I make this clear? Because I, I want to I bring to our attention what we all know with our heads, but I want to remind us that we're not just surrounded by ideas, we're, we're in the middle of a war of ideas. A war of ideas. Ideas that try to tell us who the heroes and who the villains are. We're surrounded by ideas that, that, that try to tell us what is the nature of reality. What's the nature of our destiny? We're surrounded by ideas of telling us where to put our hope and what we should call good and what we should call not good. And if you've paid any attention at all, you realize that a lot of these people spouting these ideas don't agree. Right? That's why I call it a war of ideas. But ideas matter. What we believe about things matter. What we, what we, what we, the ideas that we hold actually change not just the way we see the world, but the way we live in the world. Ideas have consequences. And if we just passively engage these ideas without thinking through the question of which of these are true and which of these are not true, we may easily be deluded by ideas that shape the way we see the world and live in the world in ways that are not formed by the gospel. Again, I know you know all these things, but I think it's important sometimes to stop and remember and reflect. Ideas have consequences. There are lots of questions that these ideas bring up. Questions of knowledge, how do we know things? Questions of authority, who's in charge? Questions of identity, who are we? Where do we come from? Questions of the good and, and, and what does it mean to be good in the world? But, but there's a question I think that, that we need to and we don't often slow down and stop to ask and that's this question of telos. 
Telos. Telos is an ancient Greek term, and the reason I use a Greek term here, not an English, is there's just not a good English translation. There's not one good, easy word to, to, to supplant here. The idea of telos, this Greek idea of telos, is this kind of, this sense of the goal of the universe, the end to which we are moving, what are we, what are we doing in this world, where are we going, how will we know when we arrive? This idea of telos is trajectory and destination. What Paul is going to confront us on is he's going, to ask, he's going to force us to ask questions of telos through the lens of resurrection. Now, for the last three, four, three or four weeks, Bryce and Derek have been leading us through chapter 15 as we look at the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of us in the end, and what does that mean? And we've spent a lot, we've done a lot of good work over the last couple of weeks, but what Paul is going to do right now is he's going to set our, our way of understanding the world in context with this understanding of telos, to what end is all of history moving? So that's what we're going to work at today. I think it's important before we get started to remember that everybody, whether they recognize it or not, have, is living with some kind of assumed telos. So, some assumed sense of what the, what, what the end to which we are moving towards is. What's the end of human history? What's the end of my life? Where, where are we going and how will we know when we arrive at our destination. Every worldview, listen, every idea out there, every way of seeing the world has a telos, and every telos has consequences. Every way of seeing the world has a telos, and every telos has consequences. The way we see the end shapes how we live in the present. I think there's three buckets. This is a bit reductionistic, but I think there's three general buckets that we could put all these different ways of seeing our relationship to the end uh, in, in these buckets. And the first is this, that many of these stories of the end end up some way saying our future is up to us. Our future, whatever happens to us, whatever happens to our world is really up to us. It's what are we going to do? How, what are we going to make of our lives what are we going to make of the structures of the politics around us and the governments around us and the, and the businesses around us and our communities and our neighborhoods? It's up to us. And this, this can have religious connotations. All, all world religions, Christianity accepted, in one way or another reduces down to this. The gods, whatever gods they are, react to what we do so we should do good things to end up in good places. That's the context reduced down very simplistically of most world religions. If you look at most historic philosophers, they will, whether it's Plato and, and Aristotle talking about virtues and ideas, whether it's uh, Descartes or Locke or Hume or these other philosophers, they have these ways of saying, this is how we need to construct human living, human society in order to get to some preferred destination as a people. Political movements. I mean, every campaign, every ad campaign you see from a politician is trying to promise you some hope and how they're the ones that are going to get us there. And that's nothing new. Caesar and the Romans were doing this thousands of years ago. The French and American revolutions didn't emerge out of a vacuum. They came as a consequence of ideas in which we were going to craft a future. All of these things are there. But I want you to understand this. Like, 
Many of these ideas will basically say whatever happens in the future is up to us, so do the right thing and get to work. Make sense? There's a second bucket. The second bucket says this. It's not that our future is up to us. It's that our future is empty and void. These are the people that are great to have a part at a party with you. Everything's going to end in a slow, cold death of the universe. There's no really purpose to the universe, so I guess I'd say have fun, but that's meaningless too. This actually got heightened. Uh, in, in many ways, one of the first philosophers, prominent philosophers to be honest with his rejection of the divine was Nietzsche. Frederick Nietzsche, what, what he, ends up ta- he ends up developing this way of seeing the world that we now call nihilism in which all things are meaningless, all things are pointless, all things are purposeless, or purposeless. There's no end or destination to which we're going. We're just floating chemicals, surrounded by other chemicals. Have fun. Along behind him came a writer, Camus, French thinker, and, and uh, in, in his book, The Myth of Sisyphus, he, he confronts this question. He's, he's wrestling with the implications of what Nietzsche says about the meaninglessness of life. And he asks this question, which is actually a pretty good question to ask. Why would I not just commit suicide if everything is pointless? And what Camus says is if, if the whole world is pointless, I can't really own anything. The only thing I have of value is my freedom. So why would I use my freedom to take away my freedom? And that's his reason not to commit suicide. Not very compelling in my estimation. <laughs> you see how dreary and, glim and, and gloomy this is? Because if there's no end or destination to which we're going, what is the point? What is the point? I think there's, way, there's ways in which the philosophers will write about this emptiness and void, but listen, I think this shows up in ways that we're not aware of through, through the means often of Hollywood and Fifth Avenue. Because what we're, what we're basically saying in our world is there's no point to existence, so you might as well just, as, as the, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, eat, drink, be merry, tomorrow we die. So let's fill our closets full of stuff. Let's fill our garages full of the newest car. Let's put, put the nicest gadgets in our pockets. Let's go to the movies. Let's forget the world exists. The world is empty and void. But there's a third bucket. I would hope so because those first two don't sound very good. And that is this, that the future belongs to God. The future belongs to God. Now that statement may sound like, well, yeah, duh, Jeff. They pay you to get up on stage and say stuff like this? But I don't know if we often reckon with how deep that promise goes. That yes, what I do in life matters, but in the end, I can't control anything. This was actually the message of Ecclesiastes. Koala is wrestling with, what's the point to life? I've tried wisdom, I've tried riches, I've tried sex, I've tried pleasure, I've tried everything, nothing gets me anywhere. What do I do with my life? The prophets in the Old Testament Remind us over and over and over again that God is at work even when you can't see him. 
history is not moved by Pharaohs and Caesars. History is moved by God and God alone. Your destiny is not something that you create or you curate. And this, isn't this what Jesus said when he walks on the earth and he promises a kingdom that will come and is now present among us? He says, death can't stop any of this, even my death. You see, I hope you understand that our telos shapes the way we see the world and it shapes the way we live in the world because all of these ideas have consequences. It's because of this that I think Paul writes 1 Corinthians 15. It's because these ideas matter that Paul gives us 1 Corinthians 15. So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to go there and see what he says. Now, I want to start at the beginning of the chapter because chapter 15 really is, is, uh, is a whole and I'm going to remind us of what he talks about in verse 1 through 9. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn, out to, turn to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Paul writes this. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. See, Paul is saying what he's been saying the whole book, which is the gospel gives shape to all of life. The gospel shapes all of life. It is the message that we receive and that transforms us. But this isn't, listen, this isn't some idea that's just floating off in, in, uh, in the air somewhere. This actually hinges in reality. Look at verse 3. He goes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He's pointing to historical realities, right? That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas. He said, hey, hey, Peter, who's you've met or have heard of, and he's in these churches. He was there. He saw it. And then he went to the 12, and he's like, hey, you've heard these men if you haven't met them before. These are real men who saw real things. Verse 6, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He's saying, hey, if you're not sure if this really happened, go talk to them. Go talk to them. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. I think the important thing that we have to remember here is that when Paul talks about this telos, he's anchoring it in a real historical event. This isn't just an idea. It's not, it's not Plato uh, uh, dreaming up this idea of forms in a cave and, and, and all of his ideas that he just kind of presents out there that have no substance to them or no anchor to them. He's saying, no, no, these are real things that really happened, that really impacted life. These are real historical events that have real meaning for the present, that have real implications for the future. In other words, the resurrection transforms all of life how we see the world. I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts it in his brilliant essay, The World's Last Night. He says this, 
There are many reasons why the modern Christian and even the modern theologian may hesitate to give to the doctrine of Christ's second coming that emphasis which is, was usually laid on it by our ancestors. I want to stop right there. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying like the early church knew that this mattered. They knew that Jesus' resurrection and his second coming mattered and they focused on it. Even if today we tend to ignore it. He continues, yet it seems to me impossible to retain in any recognizable form our belief in the divinity of Christ and the tr truth of the Christian revelation while abandoning or even persistently neglecting the promised and threatened return. This is the promise. He shall come again to judge the quick and the dead, says the Apostles' Creed. He continues on a little bit later, if this is not an integral part of the faith once given to the saints, I don't know what is. Here's why I want to bring this up. We often, in a gospel-centered church, will talk about God's grace to meet us in times of need, and that is right. We will talk about the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the lives of people around us, and that's right, and that's good. The presence of the Holy Spirit matters. We'll talk about creation and how God created all things. Those are things that are right. But if we neglect what's coming, if we neglect where we're going, if we neglect the fact that God is moving history in one direction, then we've lost the center of the gospel. We've lost the center of the gospel. Because all of these things that we hold true point us to that beautiful truth and that beautiful reality. So we're going to look at verses 50 to 58 in 1 Corinthians. And I think there are three things that Paul is going to show us here as we walk through this. He's going to make three connections. He's going to connect the resurrection to the kingdom, the resurrection to our hope, and the resurrection to mission. Let's start in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body, perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Derek led us through the chapter, the verses before this last week, and we look about this transformation that God brings in the resurrection of us, of our physical bodies, that it's not just a spiritual resurrection, but that it's a physical recreation. But here, what, what Paul is reminding us is if that change doesn't happen, we cannot inherit the kingdom of God because the, in, the kingdom of God itself is, in, uh, is, uh, is imp, in, imperishable. How can the thing that perishes, how can the thing that is frail inhabit the thing that is imperishable? This language here about in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. When he refers to the last trumpet, he's referring to the second coming of Jesus. And here's what he says. What we talked about last week, in a moment, you're transformed. In a moment, you, listen, you in this room will be transformed. This isn't some ethereal idea. This is real future. 
will be transformed, made imperishable to inherit an imperishable kingdom. Paul says it this way in Philippians 3. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Christ's kingdom is present with us, is present among us, Jesus would say. And yet we cannot actually inhabit the kingdom to come until we are changed and we are transformed, which is what is promised here. Look at verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our city yesterday felt this with acuteness. As just a couple miles from here in a parking lot, a tragedy took the life of a little one. In this room, we've wrestled, many of us, with death of loved ones. We felt the sting. Some of those deaths we may have anticipated, but many of them we didn't. Many of us carry in our bodies right now things that are killing us or that may kill us someday soon. Guys, I don't want to, I don't want to go here just to try to try to to I know I'm I know I'm I'm touching on sacred things when I say you feel this sting of death. Every single one of you have. And if this telos, if this into which we are going is not true, then death wins. But the promise, the promise of this is that it doesn't. The promise of this text is that it doesn't. It still stings, yes. But listen, what Paul promises us is that in one moment in the future, in that very moment, death is gone. Disease is gone. Sin is gone. Sorrow is gone. Tears are gone. We do feel the sting of sin. We do feel the sting of death. But it has no lasting power. Friends, I know we know this here. I'm asking, has it sunk here to where it actually shapes the way you go about life today? What Paul is getting at is giving us an idea that shapes and changes the way we see the world and the way we live in the world. He ends in verse 58. Look at verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 
we, uh, living in Oklahoma always is kind of interesting in May and June. And most of us either have storm shelters or we know where the nearest one is. And we've been taught and trained that when our favorite meteorologist, Damon Lane, says, get in your bunker. I know, I'm going to get some hate for that. Get in your bunkers, go down below ground and wait this thing out. We're like, okay, and we go down. And then we're watching our iPhone and then figure out now it's time to pop up. I think way too often we approach the Christian life as if it's a hunker down in a bunker mentality and we're going to wait and the resurrection of Jesus is our escape hatch out. In other words, what we think is things are bad, we can't fix it, let's just hide out in a place that's kind of safe and then we'll emerge at the end and then we'll enjoy the beautiful sunny day. Paul won't let you live like that. This is not, Christianity is not a bunker mentality. It is not a hunker down and wait for it to pass mentality. The Christian life, because of where we're going, because of the hope of the resurrection, because of what Jesus has promised, we can work in this world towards that end in hope and know that our work is not in vain. Friends, I know some of you have done this. You've done nice things, sacrificial things. You've poured out to serve people only to be stabbed in the back and somebody run off with it and you felt like, what was the point? That was in vain. Some of you have loved people through really hard things only to be accused of vicious things. About what's the point? Some of you have tried to share the gospel with somebody. Maybe it was a stranger, maybe it was somebody you knew, and either you got a, a rolled eye and, and, and that look that somebody gives you and then walks off, or else they, they, they yelled at you for being an idiot. It wasn't in vain. Paul says this, our work, our labor is not in vain. It's because of the resurrection that we don't hunger down. It's because of the resurrection we go out into the world to advance what God is doing in the world. We go to proclaim the gospel and we go to demonstrate the kingdom of God. That's our commission. Isn't that exactly what Jesus told us to do after he raised from the dead? He said, go into all the nations, preach the gospel, making disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He sent us out to work good in the world. We're not to abandon work in the midst of a perishable world. We're supposed to work in the midst of a perishable work, knowing that even much of our work may be perishable, but his work isn't. And because his work isn't, ours isn't. Our labor is not in vain, even, friends, when it looks like it is. Because of resurrection hope, it gives our action meaning. It gives our words meaning. This understanding of Christian telos, this understanding of the end to which God is moving in the universe has to change the way we live. It has to. It has to transform the way I engage uh, others. It has to change the way I engage even internally. And I think this telos, this understanding of Christian hope gives us four things 
gives us four gifts that actually will change how we live in the world. And I want to close by looking at these four things. If this is our future, if what Paul has talked about is resurrection being our future, then what does our present look like in light of that? He would say this, I think, resurrection gives meaning to those who suffer and to those who sing. Resurrection gives meaning to those who suffer and to those who sing. Suffering feels meaningless feels meaningless all the time. And if you've walked through suffering, or if you are walking through suffering, you know what I'm talking about. What's the point? Maybe sometimes we can point to God's doing this to form me and teach me, but some of it just feels harsh or purposeless. But if what we're doing is moving towards an end in which God is going to bring what's perishable and make it imperishable, it actually gives meaning even to the suffering in this world. It gives meaning to our suffering because this suffering doesn't get the last word, but this suffering is teaching me how to hope and how to long and how to look to what's coming. But it doesn't just give meaning to, to our suffering. It gives meaning to our songs, to our art, to our expression, to our happiness. Christianity is not trying to suppress joy. It's trying to give us real joy. And actually, laughter has meaning. Enjoyment has meaning. It points us to, 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 to a fulfillment in which God brings all things under his feet and brings goodness to abound to his people. Our songs matter. There's meaning in it. Second, I think resurrection gives hope to those in despair and to those who feel thwarted. I don't know what you brought in the room this morning, but I know some of you came in feeling in despair of something. Maybe it's not utter despair. Maybe it's, it's developing despair. I don't know if that's a thing. But you just feel like you're at your wit's end. You feel like there's no hope. You're, you feel like, what's the point in the midst of this? Resurrection gives hope to despair, again, to remind you that despair doesn't get the last word. If death doesn't get the word, last word, despair doesn't get the last word. And also to those who feel thwarted. Maybe you've just been bumping up against stuff in the world and it's like, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to take control of this. I'm trying to create this thing. I'm trying to get movement and I just feel thwarted and stopped at every turn. I can't go anywhere. Listen, I want to remind you, your future is not in your hands. Your future belongs to God. It changes the way I see the challenges in life. It changes the way I see the ways in which I feel hemmed in and thwarted in life. It, it changes the way I view the challenges I face in life. The resurrection gives hope to those who are in despair and to those who feel thwarted. Third, resurrection gives fuel to those who proclaim the gospel and those who demonstrate the kingdom. Jesus has commissioned us to go into all the world and to bring the kingdom, to, 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 to proclaim the gospel and to live out 
the ethics and the vision of the kingdom where we are. That's our commission. We've been sent to do that. But Jesus also said, you're going to go and you're going to face opposition. You're going to face, in the war of ideas, you're going to feel confronted by people that oppose you. But take heart, we win. That gives fuel to what we do. I, I don't, I, I cannot imagine that James would have gone to his death in Acts if Jesus hadn't actually raised from the dead. Stephen would not have sit there and preached while people were hurling stones at him to crush his skull if he's like, yeah, I don't know if Jesus raised again or not, and I don't know what our, what our future is, but bring the stones. No, he did that because he knew Christ was raised, and he knew Christ would raise him. That's why missionaries throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia, have taken the gospel into hard places knowing they might be killed. And I'm reminded by the words that Jim Elliott wrote in his journal a few months before he, Nate Saint, and three other friends tried to reach a far tribe in South America with the gospel and were martyred. They were killed, but others that were with them went back into the love of that tribe and actually... It's, it's just amazing. The, the Lord planted a church in that tribe. But Jim, before he was killed, wrote this in his journal. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If your end is a resurrection, you can't lose anything. Ah, you can lose money. You can lose esteem in the eyes of others. You can lose those things, but you can't lose anything that matters. That should give fuel to our mission in the world. And fourth, resurrection gives faith to those who wait and to those who fear. We in this world are confronted by things that haunt us things that we're waiting for solutions to. We're waiting for things to pass. We're waiting for things to change. And many of us are afraid of things around the corner. And I, listen, in a world marked by sin, in a world marked by brokenness, that reality is a part of our experience. I'm not here to shame you. I share these things. There are things that I am waiting for to be fixed and there are things that I'm afraid of. But, but what the resurrection calls us to is a confrontation by the Holy Spirit with, with what the resurrection means for our life and it should give us faith. Philip Ziegler in his brilliant book, Militant Grace, says it this way, I just love it. He goes, to be called to faith is to be fully and irresistibly accosted by the Holy Spirit. We need this gift of faith by the Spirit to remember that the resurrection is not some mere idea floating that some philosopher came up with and threw, it up, threw, threw out there to try to sound good on Instagram. The gospel is anchored in a real life of Jesus on this earth, a real death on Golgotha, a real resurrection, and a real coming kingdom. 
And because of those things, because our end is resurrection, it shapes how we see the world and it shapes how we live in the world. So here's what I want to leave you with. What are ways in which we have bought into ideas of the world that tell us how to, how to see the world and how to live in the world that are actually contrary to 1 Corinthians 15? Second question, what would it look like for us to be marked like this? What would it look like for us to engage life the way that Paul did in light of the resurrection? Here's the thing. This is our prayer that the Spirit of God would do that in our church over the months and years and decades to come to his glory because in the end, friends, he wins. And because he wins, we do too. Would you stand with me?